sermon text this morning is Romans 5, verses 6 through 9. I'd encourage you to take a Bible and open it to Romans 5, verses 6 through 9. We did the first five verses last week. If you missed that sermon, it's online. But today is uh, six through nine, and let's pray and ask God's help listening, uh, believing, and, and putting these words into practice. Your word is a light and a lamp for us in life, dear Lord. And so let the light of your word shine now, please. Let your word's light shine in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls to show us the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. God's word. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God's word. Sometimes I wonder if people who live in a beautiful area with beautiful and majestic scenery around them, sometimes I wonder how many of those people take the scenery for granted. You know what I mean? If you lived in Portland and you could see from a certain area, Mount Hood, Mount Adams, the Cascades, maybe first when you moved there, you were overwhelmed by the beauty of it all. But after a while, you just kind of became accustomed to it, and you took it for granted. Same thing if you, if you lived in Daytona Beach, and you could see the Atlantic Ocean, and, and you visited the Canaveral National Seashore. At first, you'd think it was great. But then after a while, you'd kind of take it for granted. Same thing if you were in Phoenix, the, the, the desert surrounding Phoenix, or Tonto National Forest, some of these great scenic places. I think a lot of people end up taking those things for granted after they live there for a while. And sadly, that sometimes happens for Christians. The fact uh, that, that Christ died on the cross to rescue us sinners from eternal death, it's an awesome truth. And when we first start to come to terms with it, it's, it's great for us and we love it. But then as life goes on, it it kind of just becomes ordinary for us and we maybe take it for granted. We maybe don't give it much thought. And and that's one reason, there's others, but that's one reason why I thought going through Romans 5 would be helpful for us to highlight the gospel once again. You, you, You guys know that all of my sermons have some aspect of Christ's work in them because all of Scripture is about Christ ultimately. But I thought it'd be good for us just to focus specifically on Christ's death for sinners and what that means. And in fact, there are other reasons why Paul wrote this uh, letter to the Christians at Rome back in around 57 AD is when he wrote this letter to Christians in Rome. He wrote it for other reasons, but one of them was to highlight the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for sinners. 
And so last week in the first couple of verses, we talked, if you remember that, I, I mentioned the benefits that we have in Christ, the benefits we have from believing in Jesus, peace, grace, the hope of glory, productive suffering, and God's love being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Those are great benefits. And today we're going to go even deeper into those truths. We're going to expand on that. Paul's going to expand on that. And we're going to learn what Christ did to gain those benefits for us. So we have all these benefits in Christ. What did he do to gain those benefits for us? That's what we're looking at today. So first of all, verse 6 is, of course, where we're going to start. And it's just kind of a, a truth. Let's, you know, speaking about faith in Christ, what did Jesus do? We'll look at verse 6. Let's get into it. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So Christ, shorten that for now, Christ died for the ungodly. Not the unfortunate, (laughs) but the ungodly. He died on the cross on behalf of ungodly people. Jesus suffered and died on the cross in the place of wicked people. Paul said that earlier in Romans 4, he was delivered up for our sins and trespasses. Isaiah talks about this substitutionary sacrifice in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was a substitute. The righteous one, Jesus, the innocent one, died on the cross, in the place of unrighteous, guilty people. He died for the ungodly. At just the right time. That that probably means, you know, like Paul talks about in Galatians, in the fullness of time in God's plan, you know, in 33 AD, outside of Jerusalem on the cross, just at the right time. But also at the right time, Paul says, while we were still weak. Weak means, you know what weak means, it means helpless and without strength. But Paul is not talking about physical weakness, you know, people who can't lift very much. He's talking spiritually here. While we were spiritually unable to rescue ourselves, weak, we could not save ourselves, that's when Christ died for us. Imagine someone in prison uh, serving a hundred-year sentence for a double homicide. Guilty. Beyond the shadow of a doubt. 100 years, you know, maximum security prison for double homicide. And then imagine that same person in the prison hospital on life support, almost dead. He is completely helpless. Weak. He, he can't get out of there. He's done for, you might say. That's kind of the picture that we get here. And we are the people in the prison hospital as good as dead guilty of sin and sick with sin, dead even in sin. And so it goes like this when you think about verse 6. I am, I was, I'm the weak, ungodly sinner who deserved to suffer terribly for my crimes, my disobedience to God. I deserve to suffer for being ungodly. But just at the right time, Christ said, I will take your place. You go free and I will suffer and die on your behalf. Christ died for the ungodly. We'll move on in a second. But so, so if someone asks you, what's the center of Christianity? 
I mean, can you just summarize the nub and the crux and the core of the Christian faith in, in simple terms? You wouldn't say something like, Christians are against abortion and homosexuality and Christians have conservative political views. You wouldn't say something. That's not the center of the Christian faith. You wouldn't even say, well, Christians love our neighbors and we try to do good works. That's true and good, but is that at the center of the Christian faith? It's not. What's at the center of the Christian faith? Verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. That's at the center of the Christian faith. And that's why Martin Luther, I mentioned him earlier in the service, Martin Luther said during the Reformation to, to, to highlight the suffering of Christ on the cross, the cross alone is our theology. That's at the center of the faith. Okay, well, let's look on now in verse 7. Paul gives an illustration. I'll give an illustration, then we'll look at it. it um, you know, sometimes if you watch a movie, the bad guy in the movie grabs a woman and holds a gun to her head and threatens to kill her and all. You, you can kind of imagine a movie like that. But someone else from the crowd, what will they often say? Take me instead. Let the woman go and take me hostage, you know, and put the gun to my head. That's what happens in movies, but it doesn't too often happen in real life, does it? It happens in movies, but not often in real life are people lining up to say, take me instead, shoot me. That's kind of Paul's illustration in verse 7. You know, someone will scarcely, kind of rarely die for a righteous person, like a devout Jew who obeys God. But someone might die for a good person. You know, someone who's morally decent. Don't make too much of those distinctions. Paul's just giving an illustration here. Paul is making us think. It's hard but possible to imagine that someone would say, I'll die, take me instead of that woman who has the gun to her head, right? It does not happen often, but it sometimes has happened that someone said, take me instead of that nice woman. It rarely happens, but it's possible. We, that's in our wheelhouse, right? But the contrast that Paul is making here is that it's impossible to imagine Someone saying, here, take me, instead of that wicked criminal sex offender who, you know, killed four people. We can't even fathom that. If, if this bad guy has someone, a gun to someone's head who is a, a, a you know, a, a sex offender who has killed several people, nobody in the whole crowd is going to say, take me instead of that bad guy. That's the illustration here. On a good day, we might say, take me instead of a friend. But even on the best day, none of us would say, take me instead of that guy, you know, who's in prison for attempted murder. But that's exactly what Christ did. He laid down his life and said, take me instead of that wicked person who has done terrible things. There's that contrast. And so that's the illustration. And then you move on to verse 8. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ didn't, you know, it wasn't one of those rare situations where someone dies for a good person. This is like the impossible to think of situation where Christ died for ungodly, wicked people. Terrible people. And so do you see how Paul repeats this? He died for ungodly people. He died for sinful people. 
people who disobey God's law. What is an ungodly person? Well, you go through the Ten Commandments and you say people who don't do those things or they disobey the commandments. The, the kind of sinful people Paul wrote about in chapters 2 and 3. You know, there's none righteous, none who seek after God. Their mouths are full of cursing and hatred and their hands are full of blood. So I, I just want to draw this out a little bit. I really want you guys to think about what it means that Christ died for ungodly, wicked people. Christ died for people who are full of pride, anger. Christ died for people who hate God and neighbor. Christ died for selfish, envious people. Christ died for racist people, for, for gay people, for transgender people, for people who cheat, for people who steal, for people who lie, for drunks, for people who are addicted to drugs, pornography. Christ died for atheists, for ungodly people. Do you see what, 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 I'm, what we're thinking here, what the Bible's teaching here? Ungodly people, not like good ungodly people, <laughs> but seriously ungodly, wicked people. And Paul is just echoing what Jesus taught. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. The lost, the dying, the perishing. For us, Paul says, for we sinners. Paul is speaking for Christians in Rome and other Christians reading this, believers reading this today. So as a Christian, you can think Christ died for you on your behalf to rescue sinners like you to redeem ungodly people like us. And the good news, of course, I mean, that's good news, but the good news is that Christ died for ungodly people, so any ungodly person who sincerely believes in Jesus can say this, while I was still sinful, Christ died for me. So if you're here, and maybe you're not a believer, and you're thinking, but... You know, Shane, I, I, you really don't know how terrible I am. No, I maybe don't. But the Bible says that Christ died for ungodly people, and if you believe him, you can say, Christ died for me. That's what faith is. That's why Paul said earlier, by faith you're justified and have peace with God, because Christ has made you right with him. And speaking of Christ's death for sinners, that's how God shows his love, Paul says. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is probably thinking John 3.16, you know that, for God so loved the world that he gave his son to die for them. Out of love for ungodly people, the father sent the son to suffer unspeakable agony on the cross in the place of those ungodly people, out of love. God sent Christ into the world to suffer and die on the cross to rescue bad, sinful people out of love for them. Because he loves ungodly, sinful people. So I think sometimes when you think about that, it's like not good music. It's like dissonance. It's like doesn't sound good. It's like going to the piano and smashing all the keys. You're like, wait, God loves like those seriously wicked people you're just talking about? And furthermore, he sent his innocent perfect son to die a terrible, hellish, agonizing, shameful death on the cross to rescue them from that? That's not fair. I mean, they're bad people. They should pay for their crimes. How can God love them? Where's the justice in that? 
How can God love people like my arrogant, cruel boss or criminal politicians or doctors who perform hundreds of abortions? So sometimes I think we're not comfortable with that. That God could love terribly people, terrible people. And so probably the reason that's hard for us to understand sometimes, I'm just guessing here, it's hard for us to understand that God would love wicked people because sometimes we think that God's love is like ours and we can't imagine ourselves loving ungodly people. Thankfully, God's love is so much greater than ours. So on the one hand, you know, when we hear about God loving ungodly people and sending his son to die for them, it's like not, it makes us, you know, pause. But on the other hand, sometimes it's music to our ears and souls and hearts. It's harmony. It's, it's true and good that God loves wicked, ungodly people because we say, I'm wicked and ungodly. Amen. That's music. That group of really seriously sinful people that I was talking about earlier, I'm in that group. And I believe what it says here, that Christ died for ungodly people because God loves us, me, an ungodly person. That's music to my ears. And Paul said that I live by faith in God's Son who loved me and gave himself up for me. So a couple things to think about here. Um, God did not love ungodly people because there was something good in them yet. Earlier in Romans, Paul talks about depravity. You know, there's none righteous, none seek after God, and so on. So when God loves ungodly people, it's not like he sees a spark of goodness in them, and that's why he loves them. He doesn't love people for something in them. He loves ungodly people because that's who he is and that's what he's like for something in him. And another reality is God's love is on display most brightly on the cross when Christ died for ungodly people. So you can see God's love in different ways. Um, you know, God gives us good things in life. He's patient with us. He provides for us. But God's love for sinners is most clearly and brightly shining on the cross in Jesus giving his life for them. So when John said, when John wrote, God is love, one of the best proofs of that is by going to the foot of the cross and seeing Jesus hanging there for sinners. That's where you see God's love on display. So it's good for us to sing of God's love, isn't it? How deep the Father's love for us. Amazing love. How can it be that, that you, my King, would die for me? What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? It's good for us to sing about the love of God. And speaking about God's love for sinful people and him giving Christ for us, it's good for us to celebrate God's love. It's good for you to take pleasure in God's love for you to enjoy it, to savor it, to let it make you happy. Yeah, you're a believer. God loves you. It's not like this trite saying on a dollar store coffee mug. It's real truth that God loves you. You should celebrate it. And Paul talked about this earlier. We can even experience the love of God in our hearts. In verse 5, Paul talked about how the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts. So we can experience God's love. We can know it. We can be aware of it. 
And so thinking about God's love for us as sinful people, um, I think we as Christians need more and more to learn to live in God's love. And you, you, we, you need to learn more and more to live in God's love. And, and what I mean by that is you know it, you believe it, you live it, and you own it. God's love for you needs to become part of your identity as a person, as a Christian. God's love for you, his amazing love for you, needs to be part of your outlook in life. The way that you think about your own life in the world and the way that you go about living, you need to live in God's love. He loves you. It needs to be an indisputable reality for you each day. God loves you. Carry yourself knowing God loves you. Think about yourself as one loved by God dearly. And know that he loves you even on those most cruddy days in life. Loved by God. The more we are aware of and know and experience God's love for us, the more it helps us live a, a good, strong, solid, joyful Christian life. One of the reformers, um, kind of contemporary of Luther, Martin Bootser, said, there is no limit to how much it would increase piety among us if God's love for us was always kept in mind. That, that means it would make us more godly, make us love God more, make us love people more if we contemplated always God's love for us and that while we were still sinners, he gave Christ to die for us. Okay, well, let's move on. Verse 9. The last verse, the logic changes a little bit. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. So the word justified comes up again. We'll we'll look at that part. Earlier, Paul talked about the fact that we're justified by faith in verse 1. That's shorthand for we're justified by faith in Christ who died on the cross. We can speak in shorthand in the Christian faith, right? Christ died for us. I mean, you can make that longer, but that's a simple shorthand of it. Faith, justified by faith means justified by faith in Christ. And here Paul kind of fleshes it out. He says, we've been justified by Christ's blood. And when we talk about Christ's blood, it it makes us think of his sacrifice on the cross, you know, as the, the true Passover lamb, as the true sacrifice to take place of sinners. So what Jesus did on the cross when he was bleeding there as our sacrifice, that's essential for our justification, us being made right with God. He died there on the cross in our place as a substitute, suffering the punishment we deserved. And through that, through his bloodshed and death, we are justified. That's what Paul's saying. So it's not like there's two ways to be justified, one by faith in Christ and one by Christ's blood. But they're both saying the same thing from a different angle. We're justified by faith in Christ who bled and died on the cross for us as a sacrifice. Paul is just saying it in shorthand. But then there's more. The end of verse 9, the last little part for this morning. Much more shall we be saved by him, by Christ, from God's wrath. So on top of all this... There's more yet. We will be rescued and saved from wrath. We will be saved from wrath. You you caught the future tense? What wrath in the future is Paul talking about here? 
it's the wrath on judgment day that God will you know, shower down on ungodly, unrepentant people, wicked people who don't turn. That's what Paul talked about earlier in chapter 2. The wrath of God is revealed, or Paul alluded to at least. There's a day when God's wrath will be revealed fully against the unrepentant, wicked, hard-hearted sinners. You can read about that in Revelation parts. But Paul says Christ will save us from that wrath to come. Future tense. And thankfully, it's true what Romans 8 says. You, you guys know this text. Those whom God justifies, dot, 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 he also glorifies. So if you're justified by Christ, when he returns, you don't have to worry about being con- condemned by him and facing God's wrath because he's already stood, ju- for, he stood in your place taking your judgment. So the day of judgment is not a day of wrath for you. It's a day of glory where Christ will rescue you fully. So this is the already not yet reality of the Christian life. Already now we're justified by faith. You have peace with God. You stand in his grace. You have hope for eternal glory and God loves you. But in the future, as you think about the last day, about judgment day, you don't have to worry about facing God's wrath. A believer does not have to worry about facing God's wrath on judgment day because Christ has died for you Christ rescues you from the wrath to come. Unbelievers will face wrath because they'll have to pay for their own sin if they haven't turned from it. But believers will not face God's wrath because Christ has already faced it for them on the cross. And so when you stand before the Lord on judgment day, no worries. You've already been declared righteous and he's rescuing you from that wrath. It's kind of like Christ is the ark that brings us through the floods of judgment and wrath on the last day to the dry ground of the new creation. And that's another reason why we, like Paul said earlier, we can rejoice in the hope of glory. We will be in glory with the Lord. His wrath will not consume us. So F.F. Bruce said, those who have been pronounced righteous by God can rejoice already in their deliverance from end time wrath. That's another great truth, the benefit of Christ. We shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we shouldn't take for granted the beauty and magnificence around us wherever we live. Don't, don't take these things for granted. But even more, much more, we should not take for granted the central truth of Christianity, the gospel. As Paul expounds and talks about the gospel here, I think it's beautiful how it's very simple, but it's extremely complex and profound at the same time, right? Simple. Christ died for the ungodly. So simple that a child can understand, but profound. It shows God's love. We're justified by his blood and saved by him from the wrath to come. So let's live in God's love, and be thankful for Paul's teaching about that great event of Christ dying on the cross for sinners. Let's pray.